Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the overly criminalized podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on April 12th, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined not by the tall man, but a very special guest host, Leo Boletsky. Professor Boletsky holds a joint appointment with the Northeastern University School of Law and Bouvet College of Health Sciences. His research examines the use of law to improve health with a focus on drug policy, reducing the spread of infectious diseases and the role of the criminal justice system in shaping public health outcomes. So, Leo, if our dear listener missed the first of these special shows, this would be a good time to explain why Frank's not here, why you're here, and where we are. Well, Nick, Frank, I presume, is in Baltimore. We are in Boston, and we're here because we are participating in a conference that has been uh, set up and hosted by the uh, Northeastern University School of Law's Center for Health Policy and Law. That conference is focused on diseases of despair and the role of law and policy in ameliorating what has been noted to be a significant rise in various health problems related to structural determinants of health, which we will talk about in a second. Across the table from Leo and I, uh an all-star panel, uh, an all-star panel of Twill alumni to boot. Uh, Brianna Clark is the Associate Dean for Faculty, Professor of Law, and J-Rex Dibble Fellow at Loyola Marymount Law School in Los Angeles, an expert on healthcare law and inequality. She focuses on structural defects and biases that create inequity in our healthcare delivery and financing system, and so many other things. Jessica Mantel is Associate Professor and Co-Director of the Health Law and Policy Institute at the University of Houston Law Center in Houston. Her research interests include the impact of various legislative and regulatory schemes on emerging trends in the healthcare delivery system and the allocation of limited healthcare resources. Some of her recent scholarship has concentrated on the social determinants of health as well as overutilization. Elizabeth Tobin Tyler is Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at the Alpert Medical School and of Health Services Policy and Practice at the Brown University School of Public Health. She's co-director of the Health Systems Science Curriculum at the Alpert Medical School. She teaches in the areas of health policy, health equity, and public health law and ethics. Her research focuses on the role of law and policy and the social determinants of health and does a lot of work in terms of interprofessional medical legal education. So Leo, we just talked with three amazing public health lawyers to get a frame going there of how the they would see us processing, framing the questions associated with diseases of despair. What should we be asking this this great panel of healthcare law and policy folks? One thing that I think is really important to explore is the artificial development that separates public health and health policy. You know, this conference is focused on structural determinants, so the underlying root causes of the problems that we're seeing. And in that context, of course, healthcare plays only a partial role, a very important but limited role. And so we hope to explore ideas and suggestions for how to integrate the various 
frameworks and you know policy tools that exist to address questions in health policy versus you know expanding that framework to to really get at what are the, some of the underlying driving determinants of the problems that we're seeing in the healthcare system and and seeing also those problems reflected in overall demographics which is where you know this this idea of disease of despair really comes from the work of Encase and Angus Deaton who are sort of economists but really demographers looking at what are the large patterns in American society that are driving health indicators which really these indicators are only kind of like the canaries in the coal mine and the bellwethers of larger social structural problems in American society. So it'd be really interesting to see how you as health law and policy folks react to these diseases of despair and where you see them fitting in and not fitting in with the laws and policies you deal with. And and just before you respond, I, I think it's important to, to define what diseases of despair are, which we haven't yet in this episode, which is that the particular patterns that have been noted were sharp increases, double-digit year-over-year increases in drug overdose, uh, suicide, and alcohol alcohol-related morbidity and mortality. So in certain communities, specifically when when you look at the data among whites without a bachelor's degree, you see starting in around 1999-2000, a trend that is unlike anything that we've seen before. So basically a surging, skyrocketing trend of mortality related to these three causes rising at rates that essentially reflect a contagious an epidemic or, you know, a conflict setting. So just people dying at rates that we have not previously seen. I guess I'm thinking about a couple of things when I think about the role of health law in this. And and one is that what we've seen in the last couple of years really increasing is uh, kind of the marrying of financial interest in healthcare and an interest in addressing social determinants. And this is in part due to uh, more pressure put on states um, that states are then putting on managed care plans to help care for many of the communities for whom social determinants of health are the ones really helping to make them at at greater risk for all sorts of diseases, including mental health conditions and substance use. And so these plans having to essentially really own the outcomes in new ways, in ways that will affect their bottom line are actually leading them to pay more attention to this. And lawyers are helping to try to figure out how the rules, the regulatory rules of the game will allow allow them to do that. So um, that's one of the conversations going on right now. And then the only other thing I'll say before I turn it over is also, I do think we need to think of health law more broadly. So work by folks who are looking at the intersection of criminal law and health, reproductive justice issues, the way in which in some cases, healthcare actors are essentially being deputized to uh, try to force certain kinds of medical or mental health intervention through the criminal law and other confinement. That's a healthcare matter. It involves healthcare actors. And so I think from a practical provider perspective, it's a health law issue. And I think from a, a kind of access and equity issue, it should be seen as a health law issue. So I would I would argue for an even broader law, uh, kind of vision of what health law involves. So I, I would start by saying that the whole focus on the social determinants of health is not, it, well, it's relatively new, 
But I think, you know, the diseases of despair question have really raised the concern about sort of, okay, how do we think about this in terms of root causes? And I, and I like the, I like this sort of movement actually toward this discussion of structural determinants because I think it really helps us to think about the role of law and policy in those root causes. I spend most of my time with healthcare providers. I teach at a medical school. And so much of the discussion now in healthcare, particularly those serving low-income and vulnerable populations, and I work a lot with primary care providers, and this is partly driven by what Brita just suggested, which is this movement in healthcare around, you know, uh, accountability for populations. Much of what, what is driving the conversation for them is we completely recognize the social determinants or structural determinants of health are driving our poor outcomes. We should be screening for those things. How do we do that, first of all? What questions do we ask? But I think where the law actually comes in is that as we move to the move from screening to what do we do in response to a positive screen to homelessness or to drug addiction or to for you know someone who is formerly incarcerated and they don't have access to services that they need that often begs the question of what are the systems that that we have in place to address those kinds of problems and even if you have on your healthcare team social workers and others who might be able to help navigate some of those systems there are often significant legal barriers for for people that need to be addressed so um you know i think a lot of the discussion now in healthcare law or or thinking about it in terms of populations public health outcomes is how do we sort start to marry some of the the those different questions about what are the systems barriers that people face how does that affect population health outcomes and then what's the role of law and lawyers in trying to help to to do that really agree that uh, and I should say, I, I don't have a public health background. My background is more in the finance and delivery side. And it's interesting to me that I'm here talking, I, I'm here at a public health conference talking about the social determinants of health. And it really is because of what Bree mentioned, which is the change in the financial incentives. Um, I did a little research um, on what the policy goals were with these shift to these financial payment arrangements that reward healthcare providers for improving patient health outcomes while lowering costs. And the focus really was narrow. I mean, it was more of do a better job clinically treating people, right? So this doctor, do a better job coordinating with this doctor. And I think it's been a positive unintended consequence that it's caused the healthcare delivery system to shift culturally to not just be thinking about the biomedical model, but these upstream causes of poor health that um, you know go obviously well beyond just the traditional medical model of, of treating symptoms. So as that change has happened, I think it's really important to see what from a, I'm going to not just talk about health law, but just health law and policy, you know, what can be done to support those changes structurally? And what are, so what are some of the barriers to that? Um, and so some of the questions that I'm interested in is there's, and, and I'm looking at Nick, because he'll probably appreciate this, there's a whole, you need really good data. I mean, this system change is driven by data. And there's problems of the data is in different parts of the system. So how do you bring it all together. So there's so operational challenges there, which are in part reinforced by privacy laws that make it sometimes difficult to, to share that data. So that's one of the things I'm really interested in is those, those barriers to these players that used to be in separate silos now coming together, some of these players not being even healthcare providers. 
And, you know, what what are some of those those barriers? And I think the privacy and cultural changes is a big part of that. Let's push a little bit more on the incentives, can we? Because at least in the near future, we're going to uh, stay with a healthcare system that is a mix of public and private financing. And that we're going to be keep staying with a healthcare delivery system that is essentially a private healthcare delivery system, notwithstanding where the financing comes from. So those healthcare delivery models, increasingly, whether you're talking about Medicare, Medicaid, or private insurance, are increasingly turning to more managed care models. And managed care models are reputed to have the, you know, this ability to to uh, uh, to to do more than straight ahead clinical care. If they're not, then is that because we're not providing the right incentives? We're not pushing the correct levers? Why aren't we seeing more of that? And just to add a little bit more to that, which is, are we defining the right metrics of success for those managed care models? Mm. Certain providers are experimenting based on whether or not they think it's worth it for them financially. Okay, so that means that the ones, the the, the providers who are experiencing a kind of higher demand of certain kinds of high cost conditions are the ones who think it's worth the kind of risk to make this investment. That they're not they're not sure they would recoup it directly from the government. In fact, it, that's part of one of the issues. So it has to be that it actually saves them money, um, even assuming they're not getting a recoup. For it. So part of it is you need to know and pay attention to where your costs are. You you need the data to know that it's worth it. So we're seeing kind of the more sophisticated plans who are doing this uh, are the ones who are willing to make the investment. I think one of the biggest challenges, though, is in also figuring out um, success and how that gets defined. And more importantly, whether it's sustainable. So because this is the problem is not new, people talking about it is not new, but the, the focus on kind of the marrying of the two is relatively new. We have a lot of good experiments going on and people sharing initial data that seems positive. But if you really look closely, there's also data there that says, you know, not all of these are working or um, there may be challenges with what you're doing. And so, um, and there's tweaking involved. So it is very nuanced. So take the simplest example of um, a plan that has a lot of um, members with a condition where nutrition, food insecurity may be exacerbating the condition. And you, they, so they decide we're going to um, send medically tailored meals to the home for that patient. Except if they're food insecure, it's going to be really challenging for that one patient to eat that particular meal, not either share the healthy portion with a family member, not be influenced by other types of foods that maybe are more addictive and taste better. So in some cases, plans or or hospitals have decided we're going to actually provide meals for the family. So now you're getting into it, right? But these are tweaks that they made based on seeing what may work, what may not work. So some of it really is just you really need to have that kind of investment. And we may need more um, financial incentive from the top, but it's tricky because there are so many different factors. And so it could be even if you're addressing one, you're able to see one measure of success in a short amount of time, but it's not clear if that will actually yield benefits that would outweigh whatever investment in the longer term when you look at other problems or you look at the time that surpassed. Well, you're also trying to 
capture those savings, the savings may not come from that particular individual. The savings also may be preventative for you know a larger family, and which is even harder. Yeah. And and the other part of the savings issue is, and, and I'll just use Rhode Island as an example, where we we are developing Medicaid ACOs and trying to you know look really broadly at how these different ACOs are going to address social determinants of health. But one of the big conversations is that the savings may not accrue back to Medicaid, right? The savings may very well, hopefully, accrue to other social service systems, including the school system and other places, the juvenile justice system or the criminal justice system. Um, so how we how we build the incentives, you know, sort of depends on who's at the table and who's being incentivized to do what, but also sort of what are they going to recoup from that effort? And so that's, I think, a complicated question. Having cross-subsidies is, is never a popular thing at right. the big table, right. is it? Right. I mean, we like to talk about health and all policies and bringing everyone together, but in fact, everybody has their own budget and who, you know, <laughs> if you're not as med- as the Medicaid program getting the money back or the provider getting the money back yourself, then that's that's a challenge. Um, the other thing I wanted to pick up on, which um, Brita sort of just alluded to, is, is that um, when we talk about the social determinants of health and sort of addressing, thinking about solutions or ways of addressing those problems, very often the most costly patients or most costly families have multiple <laughs> social determinants of health that are impacting them or their and their health. And so being able to actually, you know, um, have good data on this particular intervention has made this, you know, has imp- improved this protect- particular health outcome is quite challenging. We've tried to do that um, with medical legal partnerships, which um, embed legal <laughs> interventions into healthcare. And it's very complex because that legal interve- those legal interventions, you can't say very specifically that this particular intervention led to this particular health outcome. Although we can certainly point to interventions that have saved people their housing, which we know obviously protects health or, you know, has reduced asthma triggers in housing or that sort of thing. But trying to look broadly at what those interventions actually do in terms of either, either cost savings or health outcomes can be really complex to measure. I feel like the disadvantage of going third is I I say, I'm just going to echo what my other panelists have already said. I mean, I think looking at the financial incentives, I mean, just building on what they've been talking about, and and I've written about this, is the way that we're sort of looking at managed care and the different payment reforms, the incentives are very short term. So we need that intervention to have a payoff, you know, within the next year, right? And some of those interventions, particularly maybe interventions at the childhood level, you know, are not going to have a payoff for 10, 15, 20 years. So there's a strong disincentive to invest in those more um, sort of long-term interventions. Um, and then you also have the problem, too, of who's bearing the cost and who, where is the savings accruing. So you might have a lot of the cost and the sort of in time and resources is at that provider level, but the savings is going to be at the payer level, whether it's Medicaid or the, the managed care plan. So is there a way to get that savings back down to the provider who might be the one making that investment? I think the the other issue that comes up too is, I guess we might call it just a collective action problem. So you're a managed care plan or you're a, a hospital or you're a, a, a large physician group and you see a population-wide issue. You know, we have a food desert here. Or there's this obesity problem and you may want to intervene, but the payoff for you is the improvement in your patient's health, which might have some financial rewards for you and how you're getting paid. But that intervention also is going to benefit, you know, 
everybody else in the community potentially if it improves their health. And so do you really want to be the one to make the investment when other people are also benefiting that are beyond your, your patient population? And so I think the problem with that managed care problem is, is the silos, right, that we're kind of all talking about here. And the way to overcome it, which is really, really challenging, but it's to have these broad community coalitions that starts to bring together the community as a whole, including the the non-healthcare sectors, and having some sharing of, you know, whoever is benefiting, right, um, whoever's getting the savings, somehow passing that back to those bearing the cost. And we're seeing some communities do that model, right? It's, I, I, you know, I think of it as accountable care organizations on steroids. They would call it these, you know, accountable, I forget what they call them. Accountable. Ca- 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 yes, exactly. Thank you. Um, and, and, but it's ch- very challenging to bring all those players together and work out the details of how it's going to work. But some people are experimenting with that. So we get to see, you know, what, what works and what doesn't. Let me do my Professor Doom and Gloom impersonation, which is usually Frank's role on the pod, and come right back to you, Jessica, and, and let you have the, the, the first hit at this one. And look at our sort of post-ACA world. The Innovation Center has pretty much been shut down. The results from the ACOs have not been good. We are seeing some wraparound services that seem to be falling off the, the readmissions penalties and so on. And we have an administration that I think one could see as making it harder and harder for the victims of the diseases of despair to get health care, to have health insurance. Can you cheer me up? There's another election in a few years. <laughs> you know. And the congressional midterm elections are coming up pretty soon. So, sure, I mean, right now, the political climate, at least at the federal level, is not favorable for supporting some of the things that we are talking about. Although I will say, I think these payment changes, the the move towards value-based purchasing that is really kind of nudging some of the, the broader focus, that's a bipartisan issue. I mean, when you kind of look at the congressional record, you know, I went back to when the Affordable Care Act was enacted, and it was politicians on both sides of the aisles talking about doing this. That and the seems, Bush administration was supportive more, of it. And seems more of Azar's interest than yes. prices. Yes. So I'm not sure the interest in creating these financial incentives is going to go away. You know, I'm a little concerned that the money you might need to fully, you know, adequately implement the change, you know, might not be there. But I think that the policy interest in these changes is still there. So maybe that's my bit of optimism. Um, and you have to appreciate, too, that the commercial plans are doing this as well. I mean, I do think it's more vulnerable populations like the Medicaid population in particular that stands to benefit from these more structural changes we're talking about healthcare delivery, but we are still seeing a push from the the commercial plans. Anyway, and then it states too, a lot of experimentation going on across states and how the Medicaid plans are, are paying for this. As long as the federal government continues to give the green light for those experiments. I mean, those will keep going as well. So, um, and also, you know, the, the, um, healthcare sector itself, the, the healthcare systems have invested a lot in changing their delivery model. And I don't think they want to go back. I mean, they've kind of started down this road and, 
even if there's sort of some fits and starts here, I still think their their belief is that this is the future. And and so there's a little story of optimism for you that maybe, you know, we're still heading down this path as, as challenging as it is and as imperfect as it is. Um, I think there are, you know, benefits to having the healthcare sector focus more on the upstream causes of health. Yeah, I mean, I would I would totally agree with Jessica's analysis. I think, um, it, and, and it was interesting to hear Alex Azar sort of come out after, you know, this sort of revolving door of who's going to be HHS <laughs> secretary and what's going to be their stance on all of this. But for him to say that this is something that he thinks is important is a good sign. Um, I'm a little concerned that there's there's the me- one of the messages coming out of H- H- HHS is that that they want to move b- back from sort of having the federal government really mandating or supplying a lot of oversight around what's happening around this. And I think, it, you know, that that's a little worrying from the stance, the, the perspective of trying to keep this movement moving forward. But on the other hand, I would agree with Jessica that healthcare systems have really embraced this um, and states have really embraced this. And so I don't see us, you know, majorly backtracking. There may just be a little less federal support for it than there has been in the past. Um, but I just wanted to come back, Nick, to your to your <laughs> other doom and gloom point, which is about about access um, to care for the very populations that uh, that we're talking about in this conference and that we all know, you know, are, are most in need of access. And I, I have, you know, pretty big concerns about what we're doing with Medicaid in terms of building more and more barriers for people. And I, and I, I think that's going to have pretty significant ramifications for, for the populations that we're most concerned about. So I think it is a mixed picture, unfortunately. So, okay, I'm going to try to cheer you up a little bit because I agree with all of the, the potential bad things. Absolutely. So don't, don't get me wrong, but I, I, it's my mission in life to make Nick smile. So, you know, one way to think about it is this administration has shown that uh, kind of a lot less interest in investing and subsidizing these kinds of experiments. Um, and while my initial reaction to this, um, some funding, for example, it kind of halted because it didn't see good data for delivery system incentive reform um, was, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And then I, as I, I'm on the listserv for me, uh, Medicaid health plans and it's just spiking. I mean, the interest and the creativity around how to deal with social determinants of health. And so part of me wonders if it's, if it's making people realize they can't sit around and wait for someone to help fund and that there's a greater, because there's a greater threat to their pot uh, of money that they may have, and they don't even know how much worse it could get with the threat of block grants constantly, that they're, it's making them even more focused on what do we do to try to reduce the incidence of, of these kind of very costly health diseases. So maybe, maybe that'll keep us going for a little longer and, and, and until we can get a government that's willing to come back in and then help facilitate those what those experiments are showing us. Um, I'm from California, so you know we're we've embraced, we've doubled, tripled, quadrupled down on all sorts of investments, and so the, they're not going away in California. So that means we have to be creative, right, to make sure that um, you know what we're doing makes sense um, and that we're spending our money wisely. And we do see all kinds of experiments, but a lot at the state and local levels. So you see a lot of municipals. Not, I won't say a lot, but you see more municipal systems reaching out more broadly grants, some that are de- directly healthcare related, some going beyond. Um, but I will say one of the biggest challenges, though, in all of this is bringing us back to kind of 
the topic, uh, main topic of the conference is when it comes to mental health and substance addiction, I do think that for the access issues that this creates, the folks suffering from those are the hardest hit because that's an area where we've already had barriers, where the lack of kind of uniformity and federal oversight has allowed such variation that even in a place like California, there are some counties where you can't get the certain kind of treatment that you need. And so that's a real challenge that that access issue. And I don't know what we do about that. So we've seen some proposals from the House and Senate just over the last week. There is talk of CARA 2. We had that most wonderful statute signed by President Obama right at the end of his last term, the 21st Century Cures Act. Do you see any of this stuff working? I hear criticisms that even like the 21st Century Cures money isn't being spent by the states because the things you need to spend it on have to have sustainability. And you can't develop those kinds of programs with these episodic sort of federal dumps of money. You have to spend in a year, right. especially. Although that, that now may be being relaxed, yeah. or the, the grants from SAMHSA, SAMHSA, where I think you can say the same thing. So do you see any sign of that changing? Do you, I mean, there certainly seems to be willingness to spend money in our post-deficit political world. But is it going to be the right kind of money? Are states and localities, as you say, Brie, going to be able to develop these kind of programs and sustain? I am concerned that, again, that to the the way these incentives have been structured, they really are not designed to help get at the problem the way we need to or help us get the data we need to make sure that other people will be willing to make the investment, you know, from initial experiments. You know, one of our speakers at this conference did a paper looking at the legislative testimony um, related to the opioid uh, crisis and how to solve it. And the most disturbing thing she said was she did not, could not find any testimony or discussion about socioeconomic causes of despair. Um, they just kind of assumed a, a very kind of one-sided, uh, I would even say superficial lens through which to understand that problem. And that and that's supposed to be bipartisan. So that scares me, actually. That does scare me that the people who actually are well-intended and want to do something are not kind of looking at the full scope. And so then how can they possibly design legislation that's going to help us get at what we need? You know, I guess to the extent that there is, there's more attention being paid to the challenges um, on the restriction of money, the lack of data, and a a kind of craving for more of that. Hopefully that will work. I mean, to the extent this administration is relaxing all sorts of requirements, those would be good ones to relax, I guess. But but it it does, it it makes me nervous. it makes me not as hopeful about the kind of solution we need coming from the federal government and actually looking more toward localities as the potential answer. Another speaker at the conference was um, former Congressman Patrick Kennedy. And, you know, he, I think, raised sort of the, the the crux of the issue here, which is that we really have not yet come to terms with mental health and, and substance abuse in particular being health problems that we need to address from, from the perspective of health. Um, and that there's still a lot of just, you know, assumptions about uh, blame and, and this being really distinct from other health issues. And because of that, even if we have money flowing, we don't necessarily, we're not using an evidence-based approach to how we use that money. We don't have a concrete strategy. And certainly we, I don't think we have a cr- concrete strategy coming from the federal government 
about how how we should be tackling these problems in a in a really coherent way, you know, with an evidence base. So, so you know, like you, I'm concerned that that even if you know there is money coming out of Congress to address this, we we still haven't really dealt with the fundamental questions. So I don't want to end things negatively. So I'm trying <laughs> to think of a way to put a positive spin on on these issues. So I'm talking at this conference about efforts through the Medicaid program to to integrate behavioral health and 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 physical health. And one thing that was interesting to me as I was starting to research this is that over 30 states have some innovative program going on where they're experimenting with ways to do this. And many states have multiple programs going on and being tested. And so I saw that, I was a little optimistic after I saw that. I said, okay, well, that's that's not, you know, Minnesota, California, the states that we, you know, often see doing this. This is the majority, the vast majority, you know, of states that are doing this. And a lot of those programs are in their infancy. There's some promising data coming out of there. Um, and and some some of the studies are showing pretty significant savings when you improve the treatment of behavioral health, significant savings on the cost of treating medical health. Um, and so, you know, when whether it's the state Medicaid programs or the Medicaid managed care plans, or you know, even on the, the commercial side, you, you know, maybe people will look at that and say, well, even if we're not getting money from the federal government, we're gonna do that. We're going to make this investment because, gosh, there might be payoffs. So that's sort of one positive picture I'm going to, you know, in one way I'm going to put a positive spin on this. The other thing that I, I'm wondering about is will there be political changes or sort of in the lobbying efforts of the healthcare industry? You know, the healthcare industry before was paid for doing, you know, sophisticated medical care right, interventions. Now they're getting on board this whole social determinants of health thing, and they've made a lot of investments in changing how they deliver care, and they probably don't want to see the money go away that is supporting these changes. And so I keep waiting to see if they're, you know, I, I mean, healthcare industry, hospital, every town, every, every member of Congress has a hospital, right? At least that they're representing, if not many hospitals. And I'm, it'll be interesting to see whether there's stronger lobbying from the healthcare industry that might sort of cause the pendulum to swing back. So that would that'll be my little, you know, like maybe it's not all doom. Maybe there's some, there'll be change in the future. And that was the week in health law. A big thank you to Bree, Liz, and Jessica for joining us. Not great Twitter uses these. I know that uh, Liz, you can find her at Liz Tobin Tyler on Twitter. So much thanks for having you here. Uh, we post our show notes, of course, at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Uh, Leo? I'm at Leo Belutsky. And Leo, great thanks not only for inviting me to the conference, for involving Twill, but also for being a wonderful guest host. Thank you, Nick, for having us, and thanks for doing this as part of the conference. I think it's a great way to amplify the kinds of issues that we're talking about here, and thanks to all of you for listening. Cheers. Thank you for joining us, and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Bye.